and welcome to uh, Class in the Bunker. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a joy for us to continue to watch this thing uh, grow and to be able to have all the participation from all the places that, uh, that you're coming from. Uh, we've enjoyed a lot being able to see as people check in and say, hey, I'm here from Canada, I'm here from Idaho. Uh, it's, it's fun to see where you're coming from. So uh, uh, welcome to everybody and uh, hopefully we can have uh, a good experience today. Um, in terms of, uh, of uh, stuff we wanna take care of at the beginning here, just a reminder that uh, I send out the PowerPoint uh, the day before. Uh, sometimes it's the morning before if I'm in a hurry. Um, but if you want to get signed up to re get the PowerPoint ahead of time, just go to kevinhinkley.com uh, and get on the mailing list and then I will send out uh, both the PowerPoint and then I usually send out the audio uh, later. Uh, the the one uh, thing that I will say about the PowerPoint lately is the fact that I send it out the day before, but that doesn't mean that I don't get inspiration or brainstorms or something the night uh, of or the morning, the next morning. And so sometimes I make changes. And today is one of those days so that if, you, uh, if you've actually made some changes here, you're going to be able to, or be able to have looked at the PowerPoint, you will see the changes that took place uh, overnight. Uh, so anyway, uh, now, I want to start with, with uh, an experience that I have on a regular basis. And that is when I have people in my uh, practice that are coming and we're working on things, uh, we always have these questions. And that is, why did I make the decisions that I made? What, what was I thinking and how come I did that and I can't believe I did that and why, you know, I, I'm in a handbasket, how did I get here kind of thing. And uh, so it's a reminder always of the fact that um, we do make daily choices and in the process of a day we make, you know, millions of small choices and big choices along the way. Now, the question is, how did we get here to do these kind of choices? Well, one of the things that I have found over time is that these daily choices that we made are actually uh, a function of our identity. And somewhere along the way, we have inside of us a sense of who we are and how we do things and how we do things in comparison to somebody else. They may do this, but this is me. This is what I do. Uh, and we may look at it and say, I, this is me and I don't, I hate that I do this, but I still do them. Um, and so I have this identity and it guides all the choices that I make and the things that I do. Now, in, in that process, you wonder, well, where did that identity come from? Well, that identity is, is formed over time uh, by uh, all of the stories and events that have happened in our life. And if you think about in the course of a day, how many things do you do that are, some are small, some are great, some are, some are inconsequential, some are big, of all the events that happen to you in your life daily? Which ones does your brain choose to record? What we found is that the, the, uh, the bonding agent for the events in our life is emotion. The emotion is the piece that connects it and logs it onto the hard drive where things that are non-emotional in nature 
tend to get thrown aside. It's just because there just isn't that much bandwidth inside our brains. Uh, so ultimately then these these stories, these experiences bonded by, mem by emotion form our identity, form how we see ourselves, and this forms uh, our, the, the choices that we make, big and small. Uh, the, the one that I've made, I think, to the class before is, is simply, for instance, somebody that has had early in their life, maybe they had a bad experience with math and it just didn't go very well and they remember their eighth grade experience or their sixth grade experience that went really poorly and they hated themselves for that. Okay, and But over time that said, that helped form an identity that said, some people are good at math, I'm not, a, I'm not good at math. I just don't do math. Other people do, I don't. So if that's part of that identity, then when you start trying to make your choices, like, well, are you going to go to college? Well, no, you see, I don't do math. That's my identity. That's what I do. Um, and other people can, I don't. And, and the, the battle is always then taking a look at the, why we chose our marriages, why we choose the friends, why we live where we live, why we are in the job that we're in, are all a function of our choices but that all relied a lot on our, that inner sense of who we are and, and pixel by pixel, event by event, this identity was put together by the stories and events that happened in our life that went a long way towards putting us together. Now, we're about to jump into Paul. And if you, you kind of see this as a framework, you're going to begin to see that this is exactly what Paul had in mind. We've talked about the fact that Paul, uh, in all of his writings, Romans was kind of hit the peak. He had the time to write it. He wrote it in the most eloquent form. It's framed by the ideas of Jesus the King, the new revolution is starting, and then we get right to this core piece. And this is the heart of what uh, Paul believed. This is what he taught. This is what he was striving for as he was writing to the Romans. And this is what he really wanted them to know. Um, and they had their identity. We're Roman. We're pagan. We're the children of Zeus. And they believed that. And for him to come along and say, I need you to make different choices in your lives and in the things that you do and keeping the commandments and being more, you know, those kind of things, meant a lot of life changes but that wasn't going to happen until their identity changed. And what we're going to see is just the things that, he's, that he writes is focused on how in the world do I get you to see yourself differently. Now, each one of us, I think, has this same battle, trying to recognize if there are things that we do that we wish we hadn't, how could we do those things uh, differently? Now, along with that, I, I realize that this, is, this has been interesting for us in that we're looking at the, Paul and his journeys in the Bible. We're doing it at the time over here that we're also doing Come Follow Me in the Book of Mormon. Nephi had a similar problem. Mormon, Moroni had a similar problem. How do we get people to do things differently? They will do things differently if we can change how they see themselves. 
and if we can have them see themselves differently, uh, then they'll, they'll be where they need uh, to be. Now, look at, uh, look at what prophet, the prophet Nephi is writing. Remember th- this, uh, this moment where after, after dad in 1 Nephi has had his vision in 1 Nephi 8 of the tree of life, and of course uh, Nephi wants to do what his dad did, and so he's going to really petition to be able to see it, and the angel comes and walks him through. And where Lehi's dream was more about Lehi's children and Laman and Lemuel's children, Nephi's is a much more expansive, not just his, uh, his kids and grandkids and great-grandkids down the generations, but the Gentiles as well. And he needs them to see who they are, not who they think they are, based on fake news, right? Uh, so... What the angel is going to tell him is, he's going to have him look into the future, and he's going to say, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles, those coming from Europe that were coming to the new lands, the Gentiles did prosper in the land, and I beheld a book, and it was carried forth among them. Now, so here's this book that they're all carrying, and it defines them. It says who they are especially for the Catholic priests and, and uh, monks that were trying to carry this information to the Indians and, and uh, Native Americans and all that. They're just bringing all of these things to the Mayans and the Aztecs. Um, this book was carried for. And the angel is going to say, here's what the book says. Angel says to me, knowest thou the meaning of the book? What's the meaning of this book? And of course, Nephi says, uh, no, uh, it hasn't been written yet, Mr. Angel. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And he says, I know not. And he said, this book, the Bible, proceedeth forth out of the mouth of a Jew. It proceedeth forth out of the mouth of a Jew. Now, there are a lot of Jews that wrote in that, but there is a couple of Jews who did the most writing. You might put uh, the author of Luke and Acts uh, as a prolific writer. But the, the Jew that wrote the most that we have contained in the Bible, maybe secondary to Isaiah, would be Paul. It proceedeth forth out of the mouth of a Jew, and I, Nephi, beheld it, and, and, and he, the angel, said unto me, The book thou beholdest is a record of the Jews. It's a Jewish book. What's in this Jewish book? It contains the covenants of the Lord which he has made to the household of Israel. Think about what Mormon said the, the purpose of the Book of Mormon was. He said there was two parts in the, in the title page, right? One, so that Jew and Gentile will believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's number one. But number two is trying to convince these Lamanites and these descendants of, of Lehi's family of the covenants that the Lord has made to the fathers. He calls them the promises. He calls them the promises. This is the covenants. The purpose of the Book of Mormon is to teach people about Jesus Christ and teach them about the covenants and that everything that Christ did was a fulfillment of that covenant. 
Remember, when Paul is out preaching in Corinth and Ephesus, and he's going to say, he came according to the scriptures. What was the scriptures? The Old Testament. According to Isaiah and according to what was promised to Abraham and Daniel and Jeremiah. All of that is uh, the promises of the Lord which he has made unto the house of Israel. And then the angel tells Nephi this as he's looking down the corridors of time. Therefore, they are of great worth, these covenants. To the Gentiles, we thought they were covenants to the house of Israel. He's going to say, no. In addition to that, they are of great worth unto the Gentiles. Now, why is that going to be? Well, Paul's going to tell us. He's going to go on and say, incidentally, this book, these things go forth from the Jews in purity according to the truth which is in God. God told the Jew, Paul, and he told it to the Gentiles in purity. The problem is going to be this. And after they go forth by the hand of the twelve apostles from the Jews to the Gentiles, what's going to happen here? The Gentiles, those coming from Europe primarily, have taken away the gospel of the Lamb, many parts which are plain and precious. There's going to be a moment here, and many covenants of the Lord they have taken away. Okay, so not not the, the Gentiles. He's saying there's going to be this period of time from the time that the Jews are preaching it initially to the Gentiles in, in the Mediterranean region. From Caesarea to Rome to Turkey to Spain. They're going to go forth in purity, but something's going to happen here. Uh, we have tended in kind of our old thinking the... Uh, as Latter-day Saints, well, it was the Roman Catholic Church that took all of this away at the Nicene Creed, or uh, Constantine did this, or Augustine. He's saying, no, before they ever got it, the plain and precious truths were taken away. They have taken away these things, he says. Okay? Uh, now, these things are plain and precious, and the most important part is it's the covenants that have been taken. It's these covenants. Now, that's what it is that Paul is going to work so hard to try and have people understand. And he wants these, these pagans in Rome to be able to, to uh, understand and hear of the covenants that were made both to the Jews and to them. So, listen to what Paul is saying here. So now let's, let's hop to Paul and we'll get into that that beautiful course section uh, taught by Paul. Romans 11, he says, I am speaking to you Gentiles. It's almost like listening to Moroni saying, I have seen you and I've seen your day. I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter said I was the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my service. And if some of the branches were broken off and you who are a wild olive shoot were grafted in. Okay, let me stop. 
because your LDS brains are going crazy at this moment. You're going to go, what, what? No, we've, we've heard that. That's Jacob 5. Well, yes, hold on to that thought. Just kind of pin it over here for a minute. We're going to talk about how the Book of Mormon enters in here. You Gentiles are an olive, uh, a wild olive shoot. You're grafted in among the others and now share in the richness, the blessings, the covenants of the olive tree. But, you Gentiles, do not boast <laughs> to the other branches. If you do so, remember that you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Zenos turned it in Jacob 5 to say that the branches would help sustain the root because it was Israel. Paul is going to say the root is the Savior. And he sustains the wild branches and the uh, tame branches. He's going to take that imagery. Uh, it's almost like he and Zenos were looking at the same writing from somebody. Uh, but they're going to use it to what they're trying to get done. The root sustains you. Therefore, notice the kindness and severity of God. Severity in that there are consequences that come towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness towards you, if you continue inside his kindness, otherwise here's the, you will be cut off. Now, in the idea of an olive tree, the idea of being severed or cut off is kind of a scary thing. Um, but he does acknowledge, and this is why this is, this is important, why, why would these Gentiles start to boast a little bit about who they are? He says in verse 22, Israel has experienced a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has entered in. Think about for Paul. This hardening took the place of the fact that there were so many places now in the, in, in the Mediterranean basin where Paul simply could not go. We're going to talk next week about the fact that he wanted to meet with the, uh, with the brethren and the leaders in Ephesus, but he couldn't meet in Ephesus. It was too dangerous and too painful after his painful prison stay in Ephesus. He couldn't go to Philippi as much as he loved the people up there. He would be thrown in jail and there was too much pushback from the rigorists, the Jews that were going to push back against all of that. He couldn't go to Corinth. There was just too much opposition. There was a hardening of the Jews in the synagogues against the message and they were becoming more hard and more harsh. How harsh he did not yet know. And he'd be about to find out when he gets to Jerusalem and he's bringing money for the poor saints. And they're setting him up to be betrayed in the temple and ultimately taken off to Rome and killed. He doesn't know how hardened they become, even brethren, some brethren in the church. So there's a partial hardening until the day of the fullness of the Gentiles. And if you read the Book of Mormon carefully, that phrase, hardening of the Gentiles, we're, we're still waiting on it. It's still coming. And Paul is forecasting long down the road. Now, so take this, this Paul then, 
who is busy trying to have the Gentiles understand something different about themselves, about their identity, about who they are. Then in this inner core of this gospel, Paul takes the harsh light that he's been shining elsewhere and he turns it around on himself. And he asks the really hard questions that I think each one of us, brothers and sisters, I think we ask the same things. Here's what he says. I am mortal, sold as a slave to sin. Now we hear the word slave and we think uh, Africans being brought to the new world and slavery and, and slavery to, to them in that, in that first century we could almost call servants kind of an indentured servitude. A slave, a servant might be somebody from a conquered nation. It might be somebody who hasn't paid their debt. There's a lot of ways you could become a slave, but in either case, no matter how well you're being treated, you still are controlled and bound about when you can go and what you can do and, and, and all of that. Over and over in my office, I hear, I hear from uh, good brothers and sisters that say, um, I'm trying to stop this addiction. I, I told myself I wasn't going to eat any more sugar and I'm going to do it and I'm going to lose weight and I'm not going to have that affect me and then somebody brought a cookie in and I'm a slave to that temptation. I can't, I want to read the scriptures but I sleep in too much. Well, the virus is here. We can't go anywhere so I'm gonna, I can sleep longer. Um, I want to stop looking at pornography, but this has been a bad week, and I just can't stop myself. I just keep doing it. We end up feeling like we're a slave to our sins, to our bad habits, to, the, to our mortalness that keeps doing dumb things, even though we wish, wish we didn't. So I love the fact that as Paul, after everything that Paul has done, in the heart of this gospel, he looks at himself and he says, I am sold as a slave to sin. And then this, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do the thing I want to do, but I do the thing I hate to do. I wanted to beat the addiction and I did it again. I promised the Lord I wouldn't yell at my kids anymore and then I did I do the thing I hate to do over and over and over for I can desire to do what is right but I'm not able to do it for I do not do the good I desire to do but the evil I do not want, that is what I do. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago that was, was struggling uh, with, with pornography. And, and, and you're always dealing with kind of the self-loathing and the hatred that comes after uh, they have looked at it and promised they would. And then they have a relapse. They got to tell their, tell their wife. And, and it's just hard. And, and I, was, 
I was having a conversation with a man. We we're going back and forth, and and uh, I said, "How did you feel afterwards?" And he said, "Dirty, uh, disgusting. I hate that I do it. I can't believe I did it again. And all that." And I said, "How come you're feeling guilty?" And he says, "Well, it's the wrong thing to do." And I said, "Well." Other people out there in the world don't think it was the wrong thing to do. They delight in being able to look at things like that. And he says, well, I know it's bad. And I said, well, how, know, how do you know it's bad? And it took him a while to finally say, well, the spirit tells me that it's bad. I'm feeling remorse. I'm feeling guilt. And I said, if you were as unworthy and horrible as you're trying to tell me, you wouldn't feel any of that. You'd just be totally numb. You wouldn't feel it at all. You'd be fine. The reality is every time you feel the guilt tells you that the spirit still operates in you. Every time you feel the remorse, it is the Lord saying to you, I love you. I'm not done working with you. We'll get through this. I know you don't want to do it, but the fact that you don't want to do it tells, you, tells me what you do want to do and it tells me that you're still my child and that you're still worthy. So I think that's our struggle. Why, when we know what we should do, do we find ourselves doing something else? Go back to what we were talking about at the beginning. I believe that one of the reasons we do some of the things that we do, and even for Paul as he's struggling here, is the fact that we have an inside life narrative, a life story that defines who we are, that is totally false. I believe a lot of our histories is fake news. We see it through the eyes of a child, or the eyes of 20 years, or 30 years, or 40 years, or 50 years in the rearview mirror. Well, the things we believed at the time. And when we actually take a look at it, we go, wait a minute, I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. In fact, I was just a kid. I don't expect it from my child. Why would I expect that I was going to know any differently? Now, the key, though, to being able to do things differently, as it was for Paul, and what Paul wanted the Romans to really hear, you, we change what we do when we change our identity about who we are. And that has to be altered. So let's, let's go back then to, to how Paul is then going to address this in this stretch from about 7 to, not, to, to uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. That is really the core of Romans and the core of Paul's theology based on I do the things that I wish I didn't, but I do them anyway. So, let's see what he says then. Go back to Romans 7. I do not do the good I desire to do, but the evil I do not want, that is what I do. Then he says this. For I delight in the law of God in my inner self. I read the scriptures. I'm praying. I feel good. It's like it activates the law that was written on my heart. Even if I look at my behavior during the day, I see the, I see the gap. I see the difference between what I should have done and, and what I actually did. For I delight of the law in the law of God in my inner self. But then he says, 
wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, I know, turn on your Latter-day Saint brain for a second. That should start setting off some alarm bells for you. Therefore, I am a slave to the law of God in my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, let's take a quick time out here for just a moment. Because this, uh, this phrase, wretched man that I am, if, we, if, you've done, if you've read the Book of Mormon more than twice, that ought to be setting off alarms. One of the, th one of the uh, criticisms that has always come against Joseph Smith and the publishing of the Book of Mormon was that as people would look at that, they kept saying, wait a minute, there's biblical stuff in the Book of Mormon that's supposed to be coming from ancient prophets. And there, there can be some explanations for the brass plates having Isaiah and then Nephi and Jacob are going to write the things of Isaiah. Abinadi is going to quote from Isaiah. That one sort of makes sense. But they say, what about these other instances where biblical stuff, Pauline quotes, start ending up in the mouths of these prophets? Critics will say, well, that's easy. Joseph just plagiarized. Ran out of words to do on a Thursday afternoon and started popping in stuff from the Bible. Um, those that are, are uh, faithful in reading the Book of Mormon will come up with other explanations. Well, the same prophet that, or the same spirit that inspired Paul also inspired Nephi. Because this is coming directly from the Psalm of Nephi, Second uh, Nephi 4. So the same spirit was there for Paul as it is for Nephi. Some will say, well, no, this was passing through Joseph's mind as he's translating the Book of Mormon. He had read Romans and it just kind of flowed through his head and so it's framed by that. Okay? So we ask all of these questions, why do these things end up in the Book of Mormon? Or in the, the Bible, in the, in the Book of Mormon? I think we're asking the wrong question. The question is not why or how did biblical verses end up in the Book of Mormon. For our purposes, I want to ask a different question. When those verses are there, when those allusions are there, scholars call them echoes, when those echoes are there, what does it do to you? What, did it, what does it do to me? What should it do for us? I'm going to suggest that when we see things like this, wretched man that I am, I, I believe that one of the purposes of these moments is that these verses are to act as a bridge is to act as a bridge from the Bible over to the Book of Mormon. Because if you're studying at all, you would be led naturally to say, wait a minute, where in the Book of Mormon is that? And then you're going to bridge over to, and go to the Book of Mormon so that you can see where it came from.
But look at what's happening as soon as we do that. At that very moment, we take what we were just reading in Romans 7, and we say, let me go get the Psalm of Nephi in 2 Nephi 4 and put them together. And now what you're going to have is a corpus of Scripture, two witnesses to the same issue that they're trying to address. And if you will do that, if you will use biblical references in the Bible to go to the Book of Mormon and put them together, suddenly you see two halves of a whole. And you're gonna and these things should jump out. If you weren't quite sure what Paul was saying, go read what Nephi said. If you're not completely sure where Nephi was going, go look at what Paul said. Put them together and see what jumps out. So let's do that for just a second. Because and, and, we'll, and I've got two examples that I wanna I wanna show you on this. Okay? Wretched man that I am. So this is what I did. As soon as I read that, I jumped over and I said, wait a minute, I know this. 2 Nephi 4. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the goodness of God, I'm feeling this in my inner parts, in showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, here's Nephi, and what does he say? Oh, wretched man that I am. Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh. I do the thing, I, I, for I do not the thing I want to do, but I do the thing that I hate to do. My soul grieveth because of my iniquities. So here in the middle of all of this, you've got, you've got uh, these two prophets that have the same problem. They're trying to be who they are. They're trying to be the prophets the Lord asked them to be. And they struggle in their own flesh. Paul, with his own sense, is battling. Nephi is battling his own self. It, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and sin which so do easily beset me. He could have easily said, In my flesh I serve the law of sin both prophets struggled with the same thing but then and we're going to get to this and th this Romans 8 will end on a triumph an absolute triumph from Paul and in the psalm of Nephi you see Nephi walk through the sorrowing of his sin and he says when I desire to rejoice my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. I am one who trusts God. That is my identity. That's who I am. I know in whom I have trusted. Now, let me take this one step farther. Um, and we get one more uh, biblical Paul Book of Mormon connection 
Romans 8. He's going to say to these Romans, A mind set on the flesh is death, but a, root, but a mind rooted in the spirit is life and peace. Well, yes, that makes sense. Because a mind set on the flesh, then he's going to use an interesting word, is hostile to God. Wow. A mind set on the flesh isn't just kind of accommodating to God, it's hostile to God. If you're thinking, you might figure out where we're going in the Book of Mormon with this, and you're probably right. Um, a mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. What happens is when we become a, a slave to the Spirit, a servant to the Spirit, we're going to submit. But he says, if it's set on uh, any other law, the law of our flesh, even the law of Moses at times, if it does not submit to God's law, nor is it able to do so, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, he said. Now, Think about where the connection, where somebody else might have said something similar. King Benjamin. He says, For the natural man is an enemy to God. A natural man is hostile. He's an enemy. And has ever been from the fall of Adam. And will be forever and ever, unless what? Ah, unless he yields to the, interesting word here, enticings of the Holy Spirit. I stand at the door and knock. I'm enticing you, I'm knocking. Let me in. And putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. That's how you're going to put off this natural man, but it's going to come because you're enticed. I think we think about sin as like a temptation. Like, again, I'm off of sugar, and the cookie is there, and it's calling me from the other side of the counter. I'm being enticed. I'm being tempted. I don't think we necessarily think that in some ways that the Spirit entices and tempts us to do the right thing. We think of tempting in negative form. The Spirit whispers. It calls. Think of uh, Amulek saying, I knew, but I would not know. I don't really want to know. But I, mean, I know. It's talking to me. In fact, just as you're reaching your arm out for that cookie on the counter, there's some part of your brain going, don't do it. It won't look good on your hips. It's enticing you. I, I know that it's calling you, but don't do it. Now, how are you going to be enticed by the Holy Spirit and become uh, a saint? King Benjamin said, you've got to become as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, and then like Paul says, 
willing to submit to all things which the Lord doth seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. In our pride, submission is a tough thing. In our pride, we are going to fight back against that. Uh, we don't want to submit. Uh, I have a, I've got a, a uh, another client who a few, few years ago was struggling with anger and couldn't find anything else. In, in fact, uh, what might work, what we ended up actually looking at was the 12-step program. And what we had to start with in the 12-step program when he would be enticed by his anger to say things at work and other places that he shouldn't. We started with the 12-step program and I said, and read the first step and he says, I have to admit that I am powerless to overcome my anger addiction. Oh. And that my life has become unmanageable. Well, there is a point in, in our lives when we have to say, you know what, I don't submit very well. And I've got to admit that I'm powerless. And the Lord is saying all along, let me fight your battles. I want to fight your battles. I can do that. Just let me fight your battles. Let me do it. In order to do that, we have to submit. And so Paul is trying to say to the Romans who are built on power and control and strength and always causing other nations to submit. We are Roman for Pete's sake. We bow to no man. We carry that with us. Paul, as he's, as he's writing this thing, if we could see Paul, and we could have seen what was underneath his tunic, very, very likely, as did all Romans, how did you know you were a Roman? You carried around your neck a wooden little pouch, sometimes it was a pouch, sometimes it was just an emblem, called a diploma. Your diploma said that you were part of Rome. That you were a servant to Rome. And that you were protected by Rome. And that you enjoyed the privileges of being Roman. My diploma says so. We borrowed it in our own experience in the academy. We go through the academy, graduate, and then get a diploma. But that means you have to submit. Well, he's saying, I need you to submit and go forward in what you do. Okay? All right. So, how's he going to do this? How do we submit? How do we start doing the things we should do? Here's how he recommends change to us. Our change begins how? He says... For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, servanthood, again, to cause you to fear. You were fearful in your other servant experiences. But in this case, you didn't receive this 
to cause you to fear. You receive the spirit of adoption in which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now, this is an Aramaic word. It echoes from the from the Garden of Gethsemane where the Savior himself in the midst of his pain and struggle called out, Abba, Father, Daddy. What Paul is trying to say to them is you have received in the spirit that you're receiving the spirit of adoption. Your, langu- your, uh, your lineage has been changed. And of all things he would use, he switches to an Aramaic word. And I'm, and I'm picturing the times when you'd have a house church sitting in Rome and you have a, a formerly a pagan Roman who would turn to maybe his, his Jewish brother in his house church and say, Abba, what is that? What does that mean? We don't have Abba in Greek. And his Jewish friend be able to say, that means daddy. That means father. That means you are his child. And I think that's very much what Paul felt. We cry out Abba. Father, you have been adopted. The Spirit itself testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. Your identity is changing. Your lineage is changing. Think about King Benjamin saying to his people, this day he hath begotten you. You have become his sons and daughters. Your lineage has changed. Your identity has changed. The Spirit itself testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are the children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer jointly with Him so that we may also be glorified in him. You're going to take a slave, a servant in Rome, sitting in that small little house church, maybe of Aquila and Priscilla, and you're going to say to them, you you are an heir of Christ, you're an heir of God, Abba, Father. You're going to be glorified with him. That's the change of an identity. And that will change what they do. And their choices going forward. That's a lot. That's amazing. Now, 
How does that change really happen then? Look at where Paul goes in, in 8. He says this, and, and this, is where, this is where that change is going to occur. This is where the enticings of the Spirit happen. In Romans 8, 26, in like manner, he says, the Spirit helps our weaknesses, our poor choices. In like manner, the Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for. We don't know what we should pray for. He says, ah, but the Spirit itself intercedes with unspeakable groanings. You don't even know what to pray for. But the Spirit will intercede for you as the changes in your inner self begin. Because you start in the inner vessel and then it works out. How powerful is that? And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to God's will. You don't know how to change you, but he does. You don't know how to stop doing what you're doing, but he does. The Spirit will intercede with unspeakable groanings, the pain, the, the depth, and intercede between us and the Spirit and draw that strength and power into us as we pray. No wonder it is that C.S. Lewis used to say, the greatest of all prayers is the prayer without words. If you want to have a great experience sometime, try that. The prayer without words. And allow your spirit to speak to the spirit and let updates happen inside you. You get updated to the new version, right? The spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to God's will. Now, I want to I want to finish with the last uh, couple of uh, uh, that I think is his height, because he's going to finish this part with Paul's testimony. What is it that Paul believed? Well, we know for sure that Paul struggled with so many things. He struggled with the amount of times that he was beaten. We know that he had some kind of physical ailment. We don't know what that is. Uh, there have been a number of things to suggest that perhaps his physical ailment might have been a losing of sight. He certainly had enough closed head injuries that it might have affected him in some way physically, in some way. So he had those external struggles. He had the struggles of being falsely accused in Corinth, for instance. And he has the struggles that he does not even yet know that might be his most painful as he makes his way to Jerusalem one last time. 
and we'll pick up with that next week. And he has his struggles with himself in striving to be a better person and to get rid of the the law of sin in his in his in his heart. So at this apex of his ministry, what is he going to say and what does he want the Romans to know? After he's been so candid about his own struggles. What he's going to say is this, and this should echo through time. What shall we say about these things? In spite of everything we struggle with, if God is for us, who is against us? He is at the right hand of God who intercedes on our behalf. And then this powerful statement. Who? You almost hear this as a challenge, don't you? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Trial or calamity or persecution or famine or virus or nakedness or danger or a sword who will separate us from this love of Christ but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us through our king we are more than conquers. And then his testimony. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a ringing testimony from a man who has been through so many hard times and so many hard places and struggles inside his flesh and without. This is a man who has changed. This is not the man that walked the road to Damascus. This is the man that is going to come to Rome triumphant in what he knows and completely changed and transformed. He'll go from zealous in the law to zealous in Christ. And he will take that to his dying day. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that we can look at this also and with Paul become convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor heavenly rulers or anything present now or in the future can separate us from the love of God 
because our, our identity is bound in him, our, our servitude to him is sure, and because of that we know who we are. Joined heirs with Christ, and like him, in Gethsemane, and Paul, in a little place in Corinth, could call out, Abba, Father. Abba. I bear you my testimony that these things are true. And I say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.